Happy Monday, everyone. Today, we'll be focusing on Indigenous health and Indigenous health equity with Myra Parker. As her website states, Dr. Parker has been working for over 10 years on tribal public health program implementation and coordination with tribal communities in Arizona, Idaho, and Washington, as well as with tribal colleges and universities across the United States. Prior to embarking on a career in research, Dr. Parker worked for five years in the policy arena within Arizona state government, in tribal governments, and with tribal working groups at the state and national level. Her research experience in public health involves community-based participatory research, cultural adaptation of evidence-based interventions, and disparities research. Listen, we are listening, no more friction, take a seat. We are driven with ambition, no more prisons, hit delete. Abolition is the mission, these conditions, the receipt. No surrender, no retreat. Always fight until we free, till we free. I just need to breathe. Why not let us be? I just want some peace. Should be loving me. I just need to breathe. Why not let us be? We just want some peace, followed up with equity. Black is beautiful, don't you forget. Not disputable, come with respect. My melanin, beautiful, what you expect. Black is beautiful, don't you forget, don't forget. Colonization has negatively affected social, physical, emotional, mental health, and well-being of Indigenous individuals. Did you know that most countries don't officially recognize their Indigenous populations and have very little published statistical data to represent the health of these people? Information about health, morbidity, and mortality is actually pretty sparse. That's why it's really important that we continue to have these conversations. As Llewellyn Witt said in Science, Colonialism, and Indigenous Peoples, the cultural politics of law and knowledge. The oppressive relations of power that have historically structured dominant indigenous interactions are not somehow magically suspended when scientific research is planned and executed. All too often, it is the indigenous researcher who is taught the scientific method and forced to adapt his or her cultural reality to that model. Can you introduce who you are and what field you're in? Sure. Uh, So my name is Myra Parker. I'm Mandan and Tadatsa. I'm originally from the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation in North Dakota. And um, I am an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And um, I'm also the director for Seven Directions which is an indigenous public health institute based within the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Can you talk more about Seven Directions and what does the name really refer to? Sure, so Seven Directions um, refers to the seven sacred directions and uh, several tribes view the different directions as kind of having a particular meaning uh, within their spirituality practices um, and within their cultural practices in general. And so we took that concept um, when we were developing Seven Directions, uh, which was over an eight-year period. Uh, a colleague of mine, Alina Kawe, led a feasibility study uh, that was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the CDC at one point, and I believe the Kellogg Foundation also um, provided some support to try to understand what is a 
what does an indigenous public health institute look like? Um, public health institutes typically uh, play a number of different roles within a particular geographic location. Um, so they can collect data and monitor um, disease. Uh, they can do research, provide technical assistance to um, local jurisdictions. Uh, they can provide training and workforce development opportunities. Uh, they can um, you know, do research and also evaluation functions uh, for different partners. And we wanted to know whether or not those types of things would be helpful for tribal uh, partners or urban Indian partners. And so that's how the feasibility study even got off the ground. Um, and so at the culmination of this eight-year process, uh, Alina and her team at uh, Red Star International, and then those of us who were on the advisory board, myself and about uh, 10 other folks, talked through kind of what could an Indigenous Public Health Institute look like. And one of the things that coalesced from a meeting that Alina led of about 150 tribal leaders and um, tribal public health um, administrators and, and other folks in the communities uh, was that they, they articulated the need for different major components to an Indigenous Public Health Institute if it were to take shape. And that's where the seven directions come from. So they kind of coalesced into um, a real need to focus on families and communities. So that's sort of the center direction um, to create healthy environments that support well-being. Um, another area that they mentioned in, in their discussions at that meeting was the need to um, ensure that tribes had access to and the ability to use health data and information in a meaningful way. And so that is the East um, that represents knowledge. Um, the West represents governance um, as um, sovereign nations, uh, tribes have the right to make their own laws and policies. And so um, as part of sovereignty, there's um, the need to uh, identify ways to govern um, specifically with regards to public health authority and establishing that as a function of sovereignty. Um, so that's the West. And then in the North uh, that represents sovereignty um, specifically expanding advocacy and influencing um, different policies to, to help support American Indian and Alaska Native health. Um, and then the fifth direction is above, which is integration. And that at that time, there was a real interest in um, aligning different types of systems. So within uh, tribal uh, policy, there's the Indian Health Service, or tribes can take over and manage their own healthcare. Um, and then there's the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which um, kind of hosts a number of different other functions. And then that can include um, some social service functions. And then there's also um, other agencies that help to support other federal agencies that help to support some of the other functions like social welfare and different things like that. So. The idea behind integration was kind of this um, predecessor to systems alignment, which is knowing that we're already collecting data, you know, within the health field and within the public health field and the behavioral health field and the different social service functions. There may be a way to kind of bring them all together and collect data in a in a more coordinated fashion, so that we could be able to track that information across the tribal population, um, and then. Uh, Below is culture and identity. That was another key theme in that big discussion um, and the need to reclaim and revitalize and reaffirm indigenous knowledge and traditional practices. And then finally to the South um, that represents service, which um, we took it to mean uh, growing our own, kind of growing the public health workforce within Indian country and adding to the existing public health capacity. So um, it's, it's rooted in cultural understandings, the, the term seven directions, um, but we kind of translate it into uh, what that could mean for an indigenous public health institute. And so what would you define as indigenous science and why is it important to preserving indigenous lives and advocating for indigenous health? Well, and that's, I think, the central question, you know, in terms of like how we can best support tribes in um, 
in building their own tribal public health capacity. Um, because for every tribe, um, they have their own tribal population, their own culture, oftentimes their own language. Um, they are a unique um, sovereign entity in and of themselves. I think, uh, you know, within like the state uh, language and federal language, people tend to kind of group them, you know, so like all tribes kind of more or less are the same. But um, while there are some similar features because of the federal policies and state policies um, that uh, have defined uh, tribal sovereignty and, and tribal relationships with state um, agencies and federal agencies, there are also so many differences in terms of cultural background and history and language and so on. And so um, I think what our role is, is to help tribes think about what that means for themselves. So kind of holding the space um, because we have been the recipient of so many federal policies and many of which were deliberately designed to assimilate our, our people, um, to uh, do away with our culture, our language. Um, I think there's so much information that has been lost so that um, that epistemology, that understanding of, of, and our knowledge system of you know, who we are, what our place is in the universe and how we can best um, you know, move forward together as a people many times has been damaged and um, uh, you know, just huge swaths of it lost as a result of colonization. And so, you know, we absolutely need to help understand how can we decolonize? And then after that step, how do we indigenize? How do we understand what our process is? Um, and how do we go back to our roots and um, identify those strengths uh, and the resilience uh, in order to be able to move forward and to be able to heal some of the um, the health disparities that we're seeing in our populations. And I think you brought up a really good point. I think that when people do have conversations about indigenous folks, they tend to lump everybody together instead of really understanding that indigenous people come from diverse backgrounds um, and use different languages, have different cultural practices. And that adds to the complexity of tackling the issue of health disparities within indigenous populations. And I think that that's also part of the dehumanization of indigenous people is that people tend to homogenize groups of people of color because it is easier for them so I was wondering if you could talk about some of the health disparities and health problems that disproportionately impact Indigenous communities. Sure. Well, um, I think, you know, I think that's one of the challenges is, you know, whenever we're writing a grant, whenever we're justifying the need for additional resources, um, because we're constantly operating within um, a resource poor setting, you know, there just isn't enough funding to adequately address the health issues that um, a lot of times our populations are, are faced with. Uh, we have to catalog, you know, all of the, the challenges that we're experiencing. And so, you know, I think there's a long list of, of different health outcomes where we are, um, you know, experiencing some of the highest disparities in the United States including uh, diabetes, um, you know, heart disease, hypertension, you know, certain types of cancers, um, the list goes on and on, uh, including different, you know, behavioral health issues such as depression, uh, substance use, et cetera. Um, most recently, of course, because of some of those, uh, those conditions like hypertension and um, uh, different types of lung ailments um, and, and uh, some of the other predisposing factors to severe COVID-19 outcomes. We're also seeing that uh, American Indian and Alaska Native people have a higher risk uh, compared to white uh, uh, members of the population here in the US 
in terms of contracting COVID-19 and also in terms of um, having some of the highest mortality rates when it comes to COVID-19. So, you know, we have all of these different health concerns that predispose us for COVID-19. Um, and then we also have some of these social determinants of health issues as a result of colonization and uh, federal and state policies, such as living in poverty, um, lack of access to clean potable water, um, limited housing, uh, food insecurity, et cetera, et cetera, that also combined with our, our different health issues um, make recovery uh, from COVID-19 particularly challenging for American Indians and Alaska Natives. So um, those are some of the, the things. And I guess one thing I would just point out, and um, I think that this is an, it goes hand in hand with what you were talking about earlier in terms of um, sort of lumping different tribes together is that I think it's really challenging for, um, for folks who are not from indigenous communities who are working in the health and public health fields to kind of see, um, see the forest um, because um, there's all of these different, you know, disparities and we can list all of them. Um, and I guess, you know, from an indigenous perspective, it's really important to see them from a holistic um, lens because they don't just stand alone, you know? So we can't just say um, being, being indigenous is a risk factor. That's not really the whole story, right? The whole story comes with a lot of complicated nuance that's hard to unpack and um, challenging to understand. And yet there's such a need for that, you know, because, um, you know, in flying in the face of this heightened risk, we also see that uh, at least in Washington state and in some other jurisdictions, American Indians and Alaska Natives have um, decided to vaccinate themselves at, you know, twice the rate of other um, groups, you know, so because perhaps of, of our history, you know, of, of experiencing disease and um, mass, you know, death and um, previous epidemics of smallpox and tuberculosis and measles and so on and so on. I think our communities are are particularly tuned in to the risk of COVID-19 and are willing and ready to protect, you know, ourselves in order to make sure that we we remain, you know, we continue, we endure. Wow, I actually didn't know that. I didn't know that indigenous populations were getting vaccinated at a higher rate. Um, and I think that for a lot of people who look back at the history of this country they don't recognize that a large proportion of indigenous folks were killed off by disease alone. Um, I think that there is some acknowledgement of the brutality that indigenous people systematically faced and still systematically face, but I don't know if there's quite enough conversation about how disease played a major role in the annihilation of indigenous people. So it's, it's very interesting to see that those long lasting impacts of that trauma still impact health outcomes today. So I guess I kind of wanted to dive into a little bit of history here since we're already going in that direction. And what are some historical health practices and misconduct that have been perpetuated on tribes in the US? And I guess my bigger question also is, how are the prevalence of these health problems rooted in the history of white supremacy and its ramifications for indigenous people? That's a really, it's a big question and it's an important question. Um, I think, you know, just in terms of the health, um, health issues, you know, there's, there's several examples that spring to mind. So um, I know, like, for example, uh, for my tribes, the Mandan and the, the Hiratsa, we live on the Missouri River in North Dakota. And uh, back in the 1800s, when um, smallpox was still, you know, rampant in many communities, uh, there was a steamship that came up um, from, I think, the Mississippi River. 
Uh, and for hundreds of years, our tribes benefited from the trade routes uh, that were established through those river systems. Uh, the Missouri River connects to Mississippi River, and that connects to all these other rivers. And um, when some of these diseases like smallpox came, though, uh, in addition to the trade goods that were transported, the diseases also came with um, the non-natives who took also took advantage of these river routes. So um, in the 1800s, uh, there were these boats that would come up the river and there would be individuals who were, um, you know, contagious and who had smallpox. And uh, that's how it was spread to our tribes. So I think 90%, they estimated, of the um, Mandan died from smallpox in the 1837 epidemic. And about 60% of the Hidatsa died from smallpox during the epidemic because we lived in um, fairly permanent uh, villages on the river, river banks there in North Dakota. So it was easily transmitted uh, through our villages. And I think, you know, that story is just one story among all of the different tribes who experienced um, these different epidemics of smallpox and other diseases. Um, I think, you know, I was just talking with my husband the other night and he's from the Coeur d'Alene tribe in Idaho. And there were actually um, white settlers who died from smallpox and the um, some of the trading posts there deliberately gave their blankets to the Coeur d'Alene tribe um, and ended up wiping out, you know, most of one of the Coeur d'Alene villages. So there were only about um, 20 individuals from one village who, who lived through that. So I think there's a history, there's a long history of kind of using um, the, the, um, the virus that, you know, is not just that virus, but many other viruses and, and kind of, I think, benign neglect um, of, of not really following up and, and instituting practices that would limit exposure to those types of diseases. So we hear about different academic institutions in later years in the 1900s of doing studies of measles in different indigenous groups, not necessarily in the US, but in South and Central America um, and deliberately infecting people with those diseases and seeing you know, huge swaths of the population ill or dying from those diseases. Um, we see like um, in the Indian Health Service, there were um, American Indian women who uh, were sterilized without their knowledge or consent uh, because they were trying to address you know, other factors like um, uh, sexually transmitted diseases and, um, and also in, in their view, uh, overpopulation. And they also believed that some of the women were not competent to have children in, in their estimation. And so I think, um, you know, the, the dehumanization piece goes really hand in hand with some of the history of, of health um, malpractice and, and misconduct. Uh, that we've seen vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, white uh, community members and um, American Indian populations and Alaska Native populations. Um, I guess, you know, also, you know, to that point, it's not just relegated to the health sphere. Uh, there are other, you know, areas uh, where these federal policies and practices also impacted our communities. So for example, when you look at um, the assimilation practices of the late 1800s and early 1900s, all through, I think, even up to the 1980s, uh, we had um, Indian boarding schools uh, where um, American Indian children were um, systematically removed from their communities, from their families, from everything that they knew, including their language and their culture, their way of life, um, how they dressed and um, transplanted into these academies um, where they were uh, taught how to read and write and do basic math as well as trades. Uh, so um, there were a lot of American Indian and Alaska Native teachers who came out of that, a lot of people who went into 
farming as a result of that. That was another goal for for the Boring School Initiative. Um, and and basically, you know, you can kind of see how these children were taken out of these lives where, um, you know, they had a, a very rich, unique tribal life, and then forced into kind of this mold of what was seen as the norm, what was seen as appropriate, um, and quote unquote, civilized. Uh, and it had huge ramifications, you know, it's, it's basically the disruption of the family you know, by removing forcibly and, and, and requiring children to attend schools, um, you know, basically kind of, it was the prototype for what continues to go on today. So if you look at, for example, the foster care systems within tri, uh, excuse me, state settings, you can see that in those states with large American Indian Alaska Native populations, these children are disproportionately represented in the foster care system. So for example, in Washington state, 6.3% uh, of the children in the foster care system here in our state are American Indian or Alaska Native. Even though uh, American Indian and Alaska Native children represent only one and a half percent of children in Washington state. And that's true for Nebraska, Minnesota, North Dakota, Montana, Alaska, and in particular, South Dakota. So South Dakota has, you know, one of the highest um, proportions or percentages of American Indian and Alaska Native children in their foster care system at 47.9% of, of the overall um, uh, representation in the foster care system. So not only do children get removed from their homes, they also stay out of the home for extended periods of time. Um, so these children are less likely to be placed in a permanent um, home, and they're less likely to return to their birth parents. Um, even though there are federal laws like the Indian Child Welfare Law that uh, was supposedly intended to support the return of children to their home communities or some relative, you know, from from their tribe. And, you know, those types of of experiences of not having that um, person in your life, you know, who um, has a vested interest in in you as an individual, then leads to all kinds of other types of adverse childhood experiences that American Indians and Alaska Natives may have. So, um, uh, you know, when you look at some of the data from uh, the research on um, adverse childhood experiences, uh, American Indians and Alaska Natives have um, a higher likelihood of reporting more ACEs. Um, and uh, interestingly though, in some of the studies, they're less likely than their white counterparts to uh, have um, uh, issues like PTSD, anxiety, or depression. Um, so we don't totally understand that. Um, and the authors of the article that I was reading, uh, Dr. Donald Warren and his colleagues uh, from this 2017 article on ACEs in South Dakota, um, hypothesize that perhaps there are some interesting uh, aspects of resilience that may be protecting American Indians and Alaska Natives. Uh, so despite they having, you know, these adverse childhood experiences, there may be these other protective things that are helping to um, perhaps buffer them wow. in, in unique ways. <laughs> you said a, a lot of really, really interesting things there. And um, I guess there are two sides of it. So the question is, are people reporting less PTSD and reporting less depression because we are not in a society that advocates for indigenous mental health. And so personally for me with the black community, I question if a lot of the time, and I actually see myself a lot of the time, you know, we don't talk about depression. We don't talk about anxiety and we don't talk about other mental health problems. And so even within ourselves, it's hard to identify them and to really give a name to them because we have systematically for so long had our voice silenced when it comes to being able to discuss our emotions and feelings. Another thing I wanted to bring up was I would encourage people that are listening to this to listen to the Missing and Murdered podcast, which is a podcast that centers and focuses on 
missing and murdered Indigenous women, specifically in Canada, but they do talk a lot about these assimilation programs and boarding schools. And they actually talk about the fact that a lot of people report that there was rampant sexual assault in a lot of these institutions. And so I feel like that's really important to highlight the mental health burden that comes with this assimilation and whitewashing. We see not only um, erasure of culture, we see not only degradation and dehumanization trying to strip people of their identity, but then also these children who are already in an extremely confusing and traumatic situation are now subject to abuse. And we do not live in a society, and in my opinion, as far as as long as America has existed, have never lived in a society that has been interested in protecting indigenous children and protecting indigenous people. And so it just basically creates this negative feedback loop. And so it would be interesting if you were um, if you were willing to talk more about some mental health problems that you might see in the indigenous community and I know that we see high rates of alcoholism and drug abuse in the indigenous community. And I was wondering if you knew of, or if you could speak on any sort of connection between the dehumanization and degradation of indigenous populations, the impact that that has had on their mental health, and then how that might lead to increased addictive behavior and consequential mental health outcomes. Yeah, that's a really complicated, I think, question. And I also think that that is critical to begin to unpack and understand. Um, so just, I agree, there's so much that um, goes along with the boarding school experiences, uh, both here in the United States and in Canada. Um, and you know, it, just in my own family, I didn't know this as a, as a little girl, um, but my grandmother attended a Catholic day school that was required on our reservation. Um, and um, she was five when she first started going to school. Uh, this was back in, I guess, like the 1920s. And uh, the Catholic church ran the school and nuns were the teachers. And uh, she spoke both Mandan and Hidatsa um as a young girl and when she spoke her languages in school they poured boiling water on her head um, in order to force her to speak english and i think that really um that that resonates with me really deeply as a mother um, of um an american indian girl um, my daughter has had a whole host of different really negative experiences within the public school systems and private school systems that we've been a part of. And, and just to imagine what that was like for a little tiny child, you know, having that happen to you and the trauma that had to be related to, you know, that experience when, um, you know, as a, as a small child, you think you're just, you know, doing the right thing you're just talking you know the way that you were taught um i guess the reason why i bring that up is because um later on when i was a little girl about the same age i remember walking down the street of our very small town on the reservation and my grandmother saw one of the nuns from her school and i remember um you know her being really nervous and scared and kind of petrified and i was asking her what's wrong you know what's happening and she was saying be quiet and she was kind of stepping in front of me to shield me from this nun and afterwards she explained to me that that lady is a nun and she's really mean and so i didn't want you to have to talk to her and i didn't really understand that and i think you know um as an adult, you know, having been learned about her experience in boarding school or in this Catholic day school, it helped me understand, you know, and kind of contextualize what she was experiencing. You know, I hadn't really seen an adult act that way in, in, in relation to another adult before. And it was um, 
frightening, you know, as a small child to see this woman who was kind of the epitome of strength and, you know, um, everything that it meant to be a Mandan and Hiratsa woman uh, be suddenly frozen and terrified in the presence of this stranger, as far as I could see. And I guess, I guess it's important to hear, I think, some of those lived experiences, because I think that helps contextualize some of these numbers that we're seeing in our communities. You know, there's real ramifications for real people when they are traumatized and when they are removed from their home, when they don't have the support that they need to flourish and grow and cement their identity in um, a positive, healthy environment. And you see that replicate itself across all kinds of different areas. So it's not just in terms of, um, you know, trauma experiences and substance use, you see it in terms of, you know, contact with the judicial system, um, contact with the foster care system, contact with, um, you know, the prison system, uh, living in poverty. And when you look across all these different statistics, you can kind of, I think, begin to understand, you know, this is a really complex system. It's, these things don't just happen, you know, on their own. There are a lot of different factors that contribute to how people um, are coping with all of these different issues that they're faced with across their lifespan and not just their own lifespan, but also with regards to um, uh, what is happening across generations. So, you know, when you think about um, how indigenous women were seen as commodities, you know, at first contact even. Um, And, uh, you know, that concept wasn't even really, I think, um, maybe clarified at the time, but, you know, there were women who married into, you know, French and English uh, fur trading uh, families. And, you know, there's a whole history behind that that I don't know that we really understand um, or or see as maybe relevant, but um, anytime I think you're taking uh, a person out of their own, you know, uh, cultural and societal space and forcing them to go into another one, there have to be, you know, ramifications because of the changes that they're experiencing as a result of that. Um, and even today, you know, when we look at uh, the the Bakken oil fields that have been developed uh, within North Dakota, including on my reservation, uh, we still see the commodification of American Indian Alaska Native women and children. And we still hear stories about um, trafficking and uh, rampant drug and alcohol use associated with those, those um, experiences and also with you know, that um, phenomena of, of resource development, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and I think that you brought up a really good point about intergenerational trauma. And I noticed this also being a Black person. Um, I feel like there is a lot of dismissal because colonization is seen as something that happened a long time ago. Slavery is seen as something that happened a long time ago people really fail to understand the long lasting psychological impacts of oppression and of racism and how it impacts us for generations. It impacts our behavioral decisions. It impacts our likelihood to turn to substances as coping mechanisms. It impacts our ability to process and understand and communicate our own emotions, not just to therapists, but to each other. And it impacts parenting. It impacts our quality of life, our likelihood to commit suicide and suffer from depression and I think these are all really important things. And as you highlighted before, assimilation schools existed up until the 1980s. So this isn't something that happened a super long time ago. And even from what I was reading, even after assimilation schools were 
formally dismantled, there were still large populations of indigenous people that were forced into white schools in which they were whitewashed. I mean, if we even just talk about our standard of American schooling, it is just entrenched in whitewashing. It is entrenched in focusing on learning English and learning science and learning math from the perspective of Western ideology. So I just really encourage people to think about the fact that oppression and racism is all around us and still very prominent, even though it may take different forms and that these different forms even though sometimes they may be classified as passive or classified as microaggressions are still extremely, extremely harmful to Black and Indigenous populations. Why do you feel that Indigenous representation is so important in the field of research and medicine? I think, um, you know, one piece of that is understanding how culture can play a positive role in terms of healing and in terms of maybe understanding ways to access um, our emotions in a culturally grounded way um, to your point earlier about uh, just not even being able or not being provided the space to even think about what we're feeling um, and being able to think about you know, the impact of trauma on ourselves, on our families, on our communities. Um, I think that necessarily sets up a situation where we can't necessarily access healing and ways of understanding, you know, what all of that means, contextualizing it and, and making some kind of meaning out of it for ourselves and others, um, because we don't understand maybe, um, our culture, you know, and, and our language and other key pieces to who we are, our identity um, as American Indian Alaska Native people. So I think um, as an Indigenous researcher, I can see that that is a possibility, um, whereas that might not first, you know, spring to mind uh, for those folks who are researchers who are not Native, you know, and they're coming into um, native research spaces, uh, because they're just not familiar with the culture. They may have very positive, you know, intentions and, um, want to help, uh, but without being grounded in, in an American Indian or Alaska native culture, it's really challenging to see what you've never experienced, which you don't know anything about, you know, and, and really understand deeply how it can serve as a support or a basis for healing and recovery um, and health promotion or, or prevention of, of disease. Um, and so I think that that for me is what I'm coming to understand as um, an asset. I think when I was first going through my early training, uh, I had uh, non-Indigenous mentors who said, well, you have to be careful because you're biased. You know, if, if you want to go and do research within your community, you automatically carry with you a bias. Um, and so um, it may be better if you do research outside of, of your community. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that, that's, I, yeah, I, <laughs> That's really preposterous, um, to be honest. And as humans, we are going to bring bias into our research. It's absolutely impossible. Like we can try to limit bias, but I mean, even a white person going into studying indigenous science or it's indigenous health is going to come in with a totally different set of biases. So the question is, okay, sure, there might be some bias, but is there going to be bias that could potentially be harmful and silence indigenous folks? Or would there be a bias that could potentially just lead to an increased sense of compassion and caring and understanding of what healing and care and health really means because you are indigenous. So you should be the one advocating for your people's health more than any anybody else has a right to. I can't believe somebody said that to you. That is, <laughs> that yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. I mean, the things that people, the things that people come up with. Um, so I just wanted to also ask what is needed just beyond representation? While it's so important that we see black and indigenous people 
in laboratories, in doctor's offices, in hospitals, being a part of public health policy, what is the next step? Because I think a lot of institutions and a lot of individuals think that diversity and inclusion workshops or, you know, hiring the occasional person of color is really all that is needed. But I genuinely feel that our people have been so systematically disenfranchised that more is needed. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it's, when you when you try to try to see it from the other perspective um, of you know being uh, you know from firmly rooted in the mainstream whatever that means um, I think it's really hard for folks to understand the experiences that we as people of color have every day um, and so they don't really know well maybe if we just you know recruit a lot more you know indigenous um, students and and scholars uh, that'll be enough or you know if we bring in more people of color to the department maybe that'll solve the problem and i think um part of it is certainly it could be bias who knows um and i think a lot of it too is just not being able to understand the rich um strength and and um knowledge that comes with diversity um, and having that as a resource is, um, you know, you can't put a dollar value on it, honestly, you know, so I think people just don't quite understand how to harness the, the knowledge and resources and expertise and experiences that people of color have at their, at their disposal. And even people of color might have a hard time understanding that because we've existed in these structures for so long you know i've heard that messaging more than once you know across multiple mentors i've had other messaging you know that i've experienced at every level of it of my schooling <laughs> where people will say well you only got that because you're american indian you know you only got into your college because you're american indian you know you only whatever 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 so i think we have to all break our, our frames of reference. We can't use uh, this colonized system as a frame of reference any longer. We have to get ourselves out of this box that um, has been constructed around us. And we have to develop our own path, our own shared destiny together because we can't do it alone. You know, with, um, I've had this conversation with, with colleagues and with family members, you know, taken us 500 years to get to this place where we're experiencing all of these horrific things with COVID-19, with all of these different diseases and um, behavioral health outcomes. Um, and, you know, when you look at social determinants, you know, those are a whole host of other issues with living in poverty and food deserts and so on and so on. Um, but, even though that may be, those may be indicators of where people are at right now, we can't let that inform how we see ourselves and, and what our future is. And so I think creating the space to have those dialogues, creating opportunities to think about how we can help one another, how we can identify the strengths that each community brings to the table in addressing a whole host of different health issues and um, behavioral health issues across our society overall, um, I think is really the only way to address what we're collectively seeing, you know, across multiple communities. Um, and I think, you know, taking the time to have those conversations is so important. So, you know, just this space of, of having, you know, being able to have this conversation with you, Ashley, I think is a really critical step in in understanding you know how we can envision a different future than what we have been living you know over the past 500 years um, and trying to understand you know how um, everyone has an opportunity to access the the knowledge and um, and cultural resources that we all bring with us in a in a positive way, I think is a valuable um, exercise so that we can re-envision, you know, how 
how health plays out for all of our communities. Um, and, you know, I think, I think there's ways to do that. Um, and I think that um, academic institutions can play a role, employers can play a role, governments can play a role. I mean, one of the interesting findings from our, uh, the, the research that I've been involved in for the past eight years with my mentor, Dr. Bonnie Duran and the School of Social Work at UW, uh, focused with, on tribal colleges and university students. And one of the interesting things was um, among those students who identified as American Indian or Alaska Native and some other race, like white or black or Asian, um, they actually had a heightened risk of, um, of suicide ideation and um, depression and anxiety. And so I think the, um, the more nuanced, more diverse understanding of how our society sets people up um, for some of these health outcomes is really important so that we can better support, you know, where where they're at and where they need to be um, for their own health and well-being. I was wondering if before we finish, you could talk about the systems alignment project that you guys are working on. Yeah. So one of the interesting things I think about the the fact that we have um, these federal policies is um, they're so clearly laid out in um, legislation um, and they're um, implemented by agencies like the Indian Health Service, for example. And and um, I think for many years. Um, ever since you know the 1950s, when when um, some of these policies were kind of first you know being revised and revamped for tribal communities, um, tribes have been using these very um, limited resources and finding ways to kind of fit them together to be able to provide a comprehensive array of services to their populations. And we haven't ever really taken a hard look at how those um, those systems work together. And so one of the research studies that we've been funded uh, to do with uh, funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is to try to understand um, how can we examine uh, some five tribal systems and see how those different areas work together or how they're maybe not aligned. And uh, so we've asked uh, tribal partners to join us with this research project and identify a project of their own. And then we're um, asking them to participate as teams in uh, some qualitative interviews and also some surveys to understand how uh, they view uh, the alignment that needs to occur across these different systems. And usually it's um, the health system, the tribal behavioral health system, and the tribal public health system, but other tribes have included the educational system. Um, others have focused on social services. And so um, at the end of, of next year, we're hoping to kind of see, you know, what are some of the ways that tribes have done alignment um, you know, prior to this project. And uh, just because of limited resources, they found creative ways to, to uh, fit these programs together in order to provide services to their communities. And what are some maybe new ways that they're conceptualizing alignment as a result of participating in this project uh, together and being able to um, talk with other tribal teams and kind of understand what are some strategies of of aligning uh, these different systems. And by alignment, I'm talking about the data in particular. So a lot of federal programs require um, certain health data to be collected or um, certain behavioral health data or other types of data. Um, and so uh, if tribes are able to establish a more comprehensive um, view of their data collection, they may be able to identify health indicators that are more closely aligned with their own tribal priorities. So um, the, the inspiration for some of this work came from um, some of the tribes here in Washington state who have developed um, cultural 
health indicators and um, environmental indigenous indicators um, where they're looking at, you know, uh, specific issues within their particular tribal community. And they're trying to um, narrow down, you know, what are some of the the benchmarks, the health benchmarks or environmental health benchmarks that they want to address and um, promote within their own tribal setting. Um, and so we're trying to kind of take that idea and translate it into um, this systems alignment project so that tribes are really making decisions about their own data and um, how they want to collect it, how they're going to use it and how it can be a resource for them moving forward in, in understanding kind of how these different systems um, relate to one another and how they are helping uh, tribal members address some of the the um, different health disparities that we were talking about earlier. So if people want to find out more about the Seven Direction Center and about you and your research, where could they go? Um, they can check out our website. It's indigenousphi.org. And uh, we also have a Twitter. Um, I think it's at Seven Directions on Twitter. Um, and we have a Facebook page so they can like us on Facebook as well. Okay, awesome. And then just to sum things up, I was wondering if there were any indigenous scientists throughout history or present that we should know about and celebrate. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a number of them. I mean, I think we have um, a whole host of folks at the University of Washington right now who are my mentors. Um, Bonnie Duran, I mentioned in the School of Social Work, Dr. Karina Walters in the School of Social Work, Dr. Tessa, Tessa Evans-Campbell, also in the School of Social Work, and Dr. Michael Spencer, who is also in the School of Social Work. They um, all work with Indigenous communities here in Washington State and nationwide, and Dr. Spencer is a Native Hawaiian and works with communities in Hawaii. Um, I um, have been just so blessed to be able to be a recipient of their uh, guidance and support over the years. Um, I think there's many others. Um, there's actually um, an IRENA group. Uh, I can't recall what the acronym stands for, <laughs> uh, but it's like an indigenous uh, research um, uh, intervention group that was formed as a result of uh, an NIH, National Institutes of Health uh, grant uh, program. And um, that IRENA group has probably the preeminent um, indigenous researchers from many different fields um, in health and behavioral health and um, social justice and social work uh, represented in, in all of these different research projects that have been funded. So um, I would say there's, that's a really great resource if people are interested in learning more, if they search on um, that acronym, I think they'll be able to pull up a list of, of a lot of different um, health researchers and, and other folks uh, who are contributing to the field of indigenous research today. I wasn't sure if you were aware of any other podcasts or books that you feel like focus on indigenous health. Uh, well, most recently, I've been um, reading uh, Robin Wall Kimmer's uh, book, Braiding Sweetgrass, which um, is a really interesting take on um, indigenous environmentalism and thinking about biodiversity uh, and climate change. And I think that that's a, a really great read if folks are interested in that. Wow. Yeah, that sounds really cool. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining today. And thank you for so much for being willing to talk to me and stuff. I really appreciate it. And I think that Black and Indigenous solidarity is a huge part of this current movement that we're in. And it's a huge part of our liberation. So I definitely appreciate you for being willing to come on the podcast and take the time to explain all these awesome things that you're working on with me. Well, thank you, Ashley. Thank you for the opportunity. I I'm a big fan of your podcast and I just want to continue. I only have two episodes. I know I've listened to them and I really love the, your approach. And so thank you awesome. for your work. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
please visit decolonizingscience.org to see sources for today's episode. The goal of this podcast is not to be your weekly standalone acknowledgement of racism. Put in the effort to continue your education based off of what you learn in these episodes. Follow at DecolonizingSci on Instagram and Twitter. Email DecolonizingSci at gmail.com if you're interested in speaking on a podcast or making recommendations for future episodes. Decolonizing Science is written and produced entirely by me. So please Venmo or Cash App Decolonizing Science to make future episodes and promotion possible. If someone you know is struggling with depression or thoughts of suicide, please visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org or call 1-800-273-8255.